Welcome to Religion in Praxis, a podcast series where we explore intersection of religion, society, and culture. And I'm your host, Torni Kimitavelli. In today's episode, we have the privilege of hosting one of the most influential and thought-provoking scholars in the field of sociology, Professor Eli Greenfield, a distinguished scholar, professor of sociology, political science, and anthropology at Boston University. She has authored numerous books and articles that have shaped academic discourse around nationalism, modernity, and the role of religion in Professor Greenfield's groundbreaking work, particularly her seminal book, Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity, has established her as a key thinker in understanding the development of modern societies and the relationships with religion and national identities. Today we delve deeper into theoretical contribution, challenges she faced, and the impacts of her work in contemporary society. Without further ado, let's welcome Professor Laia Greenfield to our podcast. Hello. Dr. Greenfield, could you please give our listeners a brief overview of your academic journey and how you became interested in study of nationalism, religion, and modernity? Um... I uh, was twice an immigrant, uh, moving from the Soviet Union to Israel, and then uh, for work from uh, Israel to the United States. And I was writing I was working in the sociology of culture and um, working at the University of Chicago and was writing on um, Weber, on the concept of charisma in Weber. And I remember I reached the conclusion that uh, uh, charisma was a pre-cultural phenomenon uh, and then uh, discovered that uh, I was wrong in that uh, thinking about uh, Hitler's um, who was clearly charismatic uh, thinking about his nationalism and how he uh, manipulated um, this cultural phenomenon uh, in um, in his charismatic leadership, and this brought me uh, to the study of German nationalism, which seemed to me a very natural kind of thing because it was so very much like uh, the Russian nationalism which I experienced in uh, in my uh, um, uh, childhood and uh, adolescence. And uh, I had there at the University of Chicago uh, friends 
who were working on, uh, well, I had a friend in particular who worked on friends. And as once I remember, I was telling him how interesting was my study of nationalism, of German nationalism. And I was talking about nationalism to him. And he says, but what you're talking about is not nationalism at all. And uh, then he started talking about French nationalism. And then I saw indeed there was such a dramatic difference. Uh, so I, uh, I decided to go deeper into the exploration of nationalism uh, beyond those uh, dramatic differences between nationalisms of different, different societies. Uh, so this basically brought me to the comparative study of nationalism and, and uh, that's how it began. Mm, excellent, fascinating. And well, obviously I will be touching some of the aspects in, in, other, in other books and, and, and of yours, but in your book, Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity, which is considered, as I mentioned, a groundbreaking work in the field and got numerous awards and prizes and recognition, um, the, the core argument of your book, how has it shaped the understanding of nationalism in modern societies and how the core argument of your book applies to today? Well, uh, um, the, the core argument of my book, uh, which uh, was a result of an empirical discovery, you know, it's not an argument uh, that is speculative at all, um, is that uh, nationalism is uh, uh, a very new uh, form of consciousness uh, at the core of which lies uh, a vision of social reality as um, composed of sovereign communities of fundamentally equal members. Um, it is basically uh, the cultural framework of modernity. This is the, the prism through which we today, uh, almost the entire humanity, around the globe sees reality and uh, while the core of this vision was indeed the social vision uh, it influences the rest of our vision of reality including the natural phenomena so um, how does it apply it continues to apply you know um, um, in, in distinction to numerous speculative theories of nationalism which uh, um, tried in a kind of armchair philosophical way to uh, understand this extremely important phenomenon without studying it. Um, I actually uh, saw what, what happened. I came to the moment when this uh, phenomenon 
emerged uh, when this dramatic change in consciousness occurred. Uh, and uh, then I traced, again in a very empirical way, I traced how it affected various uh, spheres of, uh, of uh, our life. Uh, fundamentally bringing uh, about what we call modern society, modern politics, modern economics, uh, modern science, modern literature, modern uh, uh, personal relations, uh, such as uh, romantic love, for example, which didn't exist before nationalism. Uh, so uh, it continues to apply uh, in every way uh, it applied in the beginning. Uh, what we see, nationalism itself, uh, and therefore my interpretation of it, it hasn't changed. It is the very essence of modern society, really the cultural framework of modernity. What changes um, in a kind of oscillating way is the understanding of nationalism by uh, the so-called experts. Uh, and uh, so, um, so um, those, those understandings, uh, to begin with, they uh, um, were very different from uh, from uh, my view that was not a speculative view, but a discovered view. And uh, they continue to be um, very different from from my view. Mm, an interesting part of, of course, as we speak, we're having the Russian invasion in Ukraine and a lot of um, efforts, scholarly and non-scholarly, have been about how that war affects the, the nature of nationalism and in general, what function does nationalism have in this war? Mm -hmm. What's your take on the role of nationalism in the, in, in the current Russian-Ukraine conflict or invasion yeah. or preceding right. it? Right. Well, um, this is uh, very clearly a nationalist conflict. Uh, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what role it has, it's the essential motive uh, for both sides, for the Ukrainian side and for the Russian side. Uh, now, uh, it so happens that uh, for reasons that I could explain, but which I do explain in my books, um, Nationalism is an extremely competitive form of consciousness. And the competition is uh, nationalism uh, because of its nature that I can go into uh, in detail um, has a peculiar characteristic different from all other um, forms of consciousness and it is that it endows with dignity 
personal identities of all the members of the nation. Because of this, and this is very unusual because dignity uh, historically has been uh, the experience of tiny, tiny strata of populations on the very top, um, and most of humanity lived without any experience of dignity. So this experience is addictive. Uh, when one has experienced dignity, one does not easily give it up. And because dignity, personal dignity, um, was related to the membership in the nation, all the national populations became very committed to uh, the dignity of the nation as a whole. Now, <coughs> uh, all the competitions between nations, uh, that's why nationalism is such a competitive, competitive um, form of consciousness. Um, it uh, moves populations to compete basically in every sphere of existence. But all those comp uh, competitions, including, for example, military or economic competitions, are competitions over dignity, uh, over national prestige, in other, in other uh, words. So, uh, uh, in, in the case of uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine, it is a classical nationalist conflict over the dignity of those two uh, national communities. For Russia, uh, the dissolution of its empire has been a terrible blow to the dignity of the Russian nation. Uh, because uh, the very identity of Russia was of this colossal superpower ruling over its dominions, right? So, uh, um, and um, it was very clear to me, uh, I think you can find it on my website, uh, it was very clear to me in the early 90s already uh, that Russia will attempt to regather its empire because it would be suffering from the feeling of terrible humiliation uh, from its loss. And so whenever it will have the opportunity it will actually try to regather it in its empire. From the Russian history, uh, the history of the uh, creation of the Russian Empire, I uh, concluded that the first country, the first independent country that it would try to bring back would be Georgia. And this is how it happened. And then I also said that an extremely important, I mean, very, very, uh, no other republics uh, of the Soviet Union were 
actually um, as important to Russia as Georgia. Uh, there never was this kind of um, relationship because Georgia was, well, I don't know if we have to talk about Georgia, but Georgia, of course, was um, an aristocratic society. Um, very early Christian, much earlier than Russia, right? A thousand mm. years before Russia, uh, with a fantastic culture, including fantastic literature. Uh, with a very developed culture of its own. And it always considered itself, as it was, culturally superior to Russia. And the Russians could not really, um, they could not um, fail to recognize that there was a very good reason for this, uh, for this feeling. So there was a very special relationship with Russia. And then that's why I thought that Georgia would be the first target also because Georgia is tiny, you know, it's not that difficult to, <laughs> to attack it for this huge uh, uh, military machine. Uh, and then uh, I uh, also thought that a very important target would be Ukraine. Uh, and it would be also the, the most difficult uh, uh, nut to crack, but that there certainly would be an attempt when Russia feels that it can do that, you know, uh, to, to attack Ukraine. And, well, this is how it, it happened. Uh, now, uh, Ukraine... Uh, Russia also feels a very special uh, relationship with Ukraine uh, because Ukraine is, uh, to a large extent, uh, is basically the borderland of Russia. Well, this is what Ukraine means. And, uh, and as an independent, or altogether as uh, a self-standing uh, country, it is the creation of Russia. I mean, uh, there was never any, you know, self-standing Ukraine. It was the borderland between Poland and, and Russia, uh, where uh, uh, the, um, basically the runaway serfs uh, ran, you know, uh, uh, mixing with the rest of the borderland uh, borderland uh, populations such as the Kazakhs, you know, the, the Muslims of the Crimea, and uh, 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 who's, uh, and this is, this is what led to the creation of Kazakh, uh, uh, Cossack population, right? They, they even uh, uh, had the, the, wore the same clothes as the Muslims, had the, the same, uh, you know, hairdos. And all that, it's um, during the Russian Empire, uh, Ukraina as a borderland uh, was also called Malarasia. Yeah? And, um, and the Russians treated those 
little Russians, you know, the great Russians, Velika Rossi and Mala Rossi, right? So the Russians, the great Russians treated those little Russians with always extremely contemptuously. So there was this uh, traditional contempt of the Russians towards everything Ukrainian. For example, and I wrote about that, I think, in uh, Five Roads to Modernity, uh, while uh, um, they recognized uh, all the uh, native nobilities of the other uh, of the other territories, right? There never was any dispute about the Georgian nobility, right? They mm -hmm. were always integrated in a way uh, into the Russian um, uh, social stratification uh, before the revolution. They didn't recognize any nobility in, in the Ukraine. Uh, they didn't treat it educated people and there were many more educated people in the Ukraine because of the church seminaries uh, and they contributed an enormous amount to uh, not only to the creation of Russian culture but to the creation of the Russian language nobody contributed more to the creation of the Russian language than those seminarists from Kiev the uh, Ukrainians, they never recognized that. You see, they always treated them with contempt. They treated the Ukrainian language with extreme con contempt. Even banning them by Valov's decree at some point. Yeah, but uh, banning, it's, you know, when you ban something, this may be a recognition of something good. Uh, and this is not, it's different from what happens in Catalonia? The, the Spaniards uh, recognize that Catalonia is a great culture, uh, that its language is a great language, that its tradition is more important than the Castilian tradition. That's why they ban it. But in Russia, the attitude to Ukrainian, which was, of course, much more ancient than the Russian language, um, they treated... For example, if a person would speak Ukrainian, even even in Kiev, you know, uh, in a public uh, place, um, they would say, so that Ukrainian is not a human language. Speak, Speak like, like, a human. like a human being. And to begin with, there was no Ukraine, you see. But then the Soviets really created it. The Soviets created it. They created it for their own, uh, you know, uh, um, competition with the rest of the world, right? They created this big republic, basically um, administratively, you know, giving numerous territory to that independent, as if, you know, the Soviet socialist, basically independent self-standing country then uh, after the second world war insisted that ukraine would have 
a place in the United Nations. I mean, no other republic had a place in the United Nations, but Ukraine, so that they always had two voices, right? The mm -hmm. There was no Russia. There was the Soviet Union. And in addition, there was Ukraine. Crimea, it never belonged. I mean, there was no Ukraine to belong to. It was uh, a Tatar place, right? They destroyed the Tatar population. They gave it to Ukraine administratively uh, uh, during the Soviet Union. So, and in the meantime, however, because of this constant humiliation, and because now there was actually um, a specific territory created by the Russians, but nevertheless specific territory where a certain population lived, there was a focus for the Ukrainian national feeling. So Ukrainian nationalism grew, and it grew uh, under the Soviet Union. It grew under the Soviet Union. Why? Because the Soviet Union, because nationalism, Russian nationalism, was an ethnic nationalism, ethnic collectivistic nationalism, which is fundamentally a racist nationalism, and they always considered those nationalities as groups of different blood. You see, this was their consciousness. So now that they created Ukraine, they defined it as a group of a different blood. On the one hand, this is of course a contradiction. On the one hand, this was just Malarosia, uh, um, in, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Great Russia, right? The Little Russia vis-a-vis -vis the Great Russia. Which presupposes that it is the same people. On the other, the creation of this huge uh, self-standing, you know, uh, um, ostensibly independent, because every republic had the right to separate, right? Uh, ostensibly independent uh, territory created the impression that it is another such group of a different blood. And this is what the fifth point in the Soviet passport uh, implied, right? Uh, that you only had the nationality, the nationality of your parents' blood. You know, so one thing was Russian, a completely different kind of animal was Ukrainian, right? So, and they could not, on the one hand, there was this uh, policy of Russification, but on the other hand, there was a constant policy of Karenization, that is, of developing the nationalities and national cultures of the republics. Right? So, um, this was together with the, you know, with the importance of the Russian language and all that, but nevertheless, it was the Soviets who developed 
the nationalisms of the outlining republics. Ukrainian nationalism was among the, the most, among because it was based on a constant feeling of humiliation and a very long, uh, very enduring feeling of hostility. <clears throat> you know, there always was this, uh, you know, what is this, uh, Mascali, you know, the, the, at, uh, the attitude to the Moscow, uh, um, uh, I mean, to those around Moscow, to, um, uh, very hostile attitude on the part of Ukrainians and uh, similar uh, attitude to Khakhli, you know, to why Khakhli? Because of the Kazakhs, they, they had this hairdress, right? So, um, uh, Ukrainian nationalism grew and uh, at the time of the disappearance of the Soviet Union, that was uh, a very widespread form of consciousness there. So uh, now Russia felt itself strong enough. Why? Among other reasons, because when it took Crimea in the, in the 2014, there wasn't a peep from the world, right? Okay, please go ahead. And uh, that was one uh, one of the calculations. They well, okay, we'll try with Crimea. Well, first of all, we'll try with Georgia. Then we'll try with Crimea. Nobody said a word. There was no protest at all. So okay, now we are strong enough. No conversation and, about and, sanctions anywhere. Mm, no yeah. conversations. Yeah. No nothing. Uh, so they <clears throat> decided they would. Uh, continue because they expected they expected that there would be the same lack of reaction from the West uh, as there was uh, uh, before, right? And it, it was very predictable. It was very predictable. What was unpredictable is when exactly it would happen. But that it would happen and that the United States and the rest of the world basically gave them a green light that was absolutely predictable. Uh, so the question was how long will they wait before they take mm. the step? Uh, and this was to get back <coughs> their dignity, right? But at the same time, the Ukrainians, they also had, I mean, it was also their dignity at uh, at stake and Ukraine is not Georgia even Georgia fought so bravely right but Georgia we're talking about what four million people and uh, and here you four million people but the people really with a very very old feeling of their identity right uh, and here you had, well, 44 million people. It is, it is a different kind of thing. Uh, and then the reaction of the, of the world was different. Um, 
Why was the reaction of the world different? The reaction of the world was different for our own internal reasons. Because just before the war, the United States and Britain, in particular, uh, were going absolutely to tear themselves apart. To tear themselves apart. Uh, you remember those uh, uh, summer events uh, uh, before before 22, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> it had to do with all those riots and things like that. And uh, uh, terrible violence between different groups, absolute disunion. Uh, everywhere where you went, there would be uh, slogans, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, <clears throat> things like that. And many people would have them because if there weren't such things, you know, they would be afraid. So, because they're really, the animosity was so very palpable and real. And then Putin provided us with a uniting cause. When you analyze the reaction of uh, the West to the Crimean crisis or to the Georgian situations, the only thing that changed to explain the different reaction now is the internal situation in in the West and leader, leading countries. Mm. And it's very interesting that now, uh, as I walk through the same neighborhoods, many places that displayed Black Lives Matter, you know, those slogans, mm. they now display Stand with Ukraine. Mm. You see, this is, uh, wait, there was this virtue signaling, you know, mm. and now the, you can signal your virtue in a very different way. You mentioned two especially interesting uh, themes, but I'll catch on um, one especially interesting concept. You mentioned the Russian nation, which I find especially interesting, given that I are, I kind of in my own work find this the Russian nation concept itself very perplexing to understand what exactly it means. Can you define what it means? Uh, oh, of course, it is completely constructed, right? It is completely constructed. Uh, the one thing that you can see, though, is that, yes, it is focused, uh, like the French national consciousness is focused on Paris. You know, there is Paris, 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 and then the rest. Well, in Russia too, you have Moscow and St. Petersburg, and then you have the rest. But the remarkable thing about the rest is that they do feel the dignity of Moscow and St. Petersburg. They feel the dignity of their great military, of their great size, of uh, they're great literature. They may be an alphabet people, you know. They may be 
completely ignorant and uh, who don't have this conscious consciousness. There are many people like that. In, at the end of the Soviet Union, in '86, there was a huge uh, uh, survey, uh, like only the Soviet Union would be able to, a really colossal survey of national consciousness across the Soviet Union. And uh, one of the most shocking discoveries was that well, nothing of the sort happened. For example, in Georgia, everyone knew that they're Georgian. Yeah. And they could also explain what it meant, you know. Uh, there was about one-third of people in Russian Federation, RSFSR, yeah? mm -hmm. who simply didn't know they were Russian. Glubinki in the, in the provinces. They didn't know. They didn't have passports. You know, there, there was this situation that one had to have an internal passport That's true. to travel. Yeah. But they didn't. You know, so at that time there were 150 million Russians. And 50 million of them were living there in the provinces. And they never traveled. You know, they didn't know that they were Russians. So when asked about their nationality. They would say, мы тутошные. We are from here. Yeah. You see? So they didn't know. But the other hundred million, they knew. And they valued that. You see? They knew that being written, this thing, Ruski, written in their passports, was better than any other inscription, you see? Mm. They felt they were above the others. And they could they could also ascribe this to something. Mm. You know? Ascribe this, for example, to their great culture. Maybe they hardly knew how to read. Mm. But they knew that the Russian culture that is, right, yeah. is great. Pushkin, you know, mm. this is what we have. We are talking about a very large population of people who are invested in the dignity of Russia. You see, mm. this is the Russian nation. Mm. How does it relate to the Russian world idea? Do you think there is a, some kind of a civilizational nationalism there or is a purely constructed no, geopolitical it a, it, Yeah, it is a purely thingy. constructed... It is a term, it is, uh, you know, uh, it is an attempt to uh, translate uh, traditional Russian nationalism into today's uh, language. That's all. Mm. You know, and of course there is another thing, and, and that is also not... Um, not that new Eurasiaistva, um, for example, Eurasianism, was um, uh, one trend in this philosophy of Russian nationalism. Mm. But you see, here we are talking about uh, intellectual trends. Mm -hmm. Intellectual trends is not the same as the consciousness 
of of the masses. You know, nobody in Chelyabinsk, for example, is talking about Ruski Mir. Maybe some professors in universities, you know. Mm. But there are hundreds of thousands of simple people who want Russia's dignity back. So um, this is this is what it is. It is a nationalist conflict. It is a conflict over dignity. It is a conflict uh, between two very large, um, very large uh, uh, parties, one of which is Russia, it has its own forces, whatever they are, the other, which is not small, Ukraine, is supported now by the West, so they are really more or less equivalent, uh, so yeah, it is a big nationalist conflict over dignity. You predicted two things, you said, Georgia and Ukraine. So who's next? I, I didn't, I, I, I thought that this was the first, the, the moment they feel they can do something, they'll go to Georgia. Then they weren't successful. I mean, the remarkable thing is that however much damage they have done, and you, of course, suffered from that uh, uh, in your own family, they weren't successful. I mean, when you think that uh, they destroyed Central Tbilisi, basically, right? It's a horrible thing. Still, you can uh, go there and see uh, bullets, uh, traces in the buildings, uh, but they didn't manage. By the way, two structures untouched in the city of Gori, uh -huh. where Stalin's museum and his monument. Uh -huh. Nearby, yeah. banks, uh, hospitals were attacked in the Russian yeah. invasion of Georgia in 2008. The two things that untouched was the, the Führer's museum fantastic. and his. It was such a telling fantastic, story of this, yes. what it stood for. Fantastic, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and, uh, and then I thought about Ukraine, that Ukraine certainly will be there. Uh, I didn't think uh, whether it would be next. I, I thought that Ukraine would be, of course, the hardest thing to regain, but they will do it when they feel that they can. Uh, so, and I didn't think about, about others. Um, there, uh, because with those two, well, first of all, Georgia, uh, I feel very much for Georgia. You see, it's uh, it's my mother's, um, it's my mother's country, so uh, it's very dear to me. Uh, they lived there for you know a very long time. So it's 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 a part missing in my own knowledge of like Greenfield's biography, which I have to confess. Yeah, and my name is Leah. Leah, which Leah, is Georgian name. Which is a Georgian name. Uh, mm. So, how do you think? And we're getting closer to the finish uh, finishing line, because of the again uh, time constraints. But there are a lot of questions about other aspects of your work. 
How do you think the role of religion has evolved in the context of, of, of modernity and, and what is the significance in shaping national identities today? We mentioned briefly the idea of, 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 of Russian world, which very often is misinterpreted as a religious project, as, as a sort of this idea of orthodoxy and kind of orthodox world, uh, somewhat intertwined with the claims on Kiev and Rus. But of course, uh, beyond the superficiality of this argument lies there lies perhaps interests of people who are doing it. But what is your take on the role of, of religion? Of religion. Um, nationalism, uh, in fact, nationalism is a secular consciousness. It is essentially secular. And the uh, mutually exclu exclusive with religious faith. Not uh, mutually exclusive with rituals and traditions, but with religious faith, it is mutually exclusive. But in some countries, you see, it is very important to, to fill the national consciousness with some sort of cultural content. And uh, in some cases, and this cultural content should be uh, dignified, should be a matter of respect of others, of, by others. And in some countries, there is really nothing to be very uh, proud of but the religious tradition. Mm. So, for example, in France, they have so much to be proud of culturally. That the fact that they're Catholics doesn't matter very much. In Catalonia, they have a lot to be proud culturally. But still, the Catholicism of Catalonia adds something. So it depends on what religion adds. In some countries there is really nothing but religion. So you can very clearly see this in Arab nationalism, for example. Uh, because uh, there are lots of things that that uh, support the feeling of inferiority, of cultural inferiority um, among Arabs. They cannot claim <clears throat> parity with the Western nations with which they necessarily compete. But when they turn to their Islamic uh, heritage, they can say, well, here you have a world religion, a world religion that was the leader of the world culture for several centuries, you know? So this is something to be proud of. Uh, they're using that as a national characteristic, you know, which is the very, uh, very contradiction of religion. Uh, you have some other cases like that, uh, for example, uh, the cases of uh, Poland, right? Uh, 
the Catholicism uh, of uh, the Poles uh, has been a very central national characteristic and in fact the symbol of their nationalism and of their opposition to Russia, for example. Uh, so things like that. Uh, now Russia also has to somehow justify itself both to itself and to the world. It has to insist on, uh, on its essential dignity, you know. Uh, it had a bad, bad historical episode of communism. They themselves rejected that, right? So now what? What should they be proud of? Well, they're proud of Orthodox Christianity. This is the third Rome, after all, mm. right? Uh, and they claim, they claim um, um, a legacy, uh, a direct legacy uh, of the Kievan Rus. Of course, it's absolute, it's a lie, uh, it's completely unsubstantiated. It's completely, yeah. has nothing to do yeah. with, with the historical facts, but it certainly is very important. And this kind of consciousness, now, it exists. You know, they think that this is, you know, the, that Krishenia uh, Rusi, for example. Well, it was a big know. deal, yeah. yeah Celebration, yeah. all of the but it, but it was ceremonial part. in Kiev. Uh, it was because of Varangian rulers, you know, of the Scandinavians. It has nothing to do with Russia, with Russia, which emerged from the Moscovite uh, um, duchy. Mm. But... Uh, okay, so they forget it and they create a new idea. So uh, this this is the role that religion plays now. It became a handmaiden of mm -hmm. secular nationalism. Mm -hmm. But in some cases it is very, very important for the consciousness and the feeling of the masses of the people. And on this note, we um, finish uh, our episode. Thank you very much, Professor Greenfield, for joining us today on Religion and Praxis. We look forward to engaging in enlightening conversations in the future. Uh, yeah, thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey. And we look forward to bringing you more engaging conversations with leading experts on the future episodes of Religion and Praxis. Until then, take care and stay curious. Mm -hmm.